0: Today, a new longship be That's Tina Bru, the Norwegian Minister of Petroleum and Energy in mid-September 2020. Norway, she says, is about to launch a new project as advanced as Viking ships were in their day. This project called Longship Will take Norway on a long, demanding journey.
1: the De norske Project for fangst og lagring av CO2.
0: It will cost money, lots of money. In its own way, it could be as dangerous as the hidden reefs, strong currents, and North Atlantic storms that Vikings faced in their day. But if long ship succeeds, it could help save the planet. Whether you've sweltered in last summer's heat or watched in horror when forest fires burned up huge chunks of Australia, Siberia, and North America, you know that climate change isn't just something our children are going to face. It's here, now, and it's a huge problem. So, that long ship that Tina Brew is promoting? It's a plan to use a technology called carbon capture and storage, often called CCS, to fight climate change. The Norwegian government has committed 17 billion Norwegian kroner to turn a carbon-belching cement factory into a climate best of class. I'm Nancy Baselchuk and you're listening to 63 Degrees North, an original podcast from NTNU the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. Today, I'm going to tell you the story of what Norway has done to turn carbon capture and storage into a viable technology that can help slow global warming. It wasn't always smooth sailing, if you'll pardon the pun. It's been a pretty big financial commitment on the part of what is basically a small, albeit well-off, country. There was even an early effort to launch a CCS project that Norway's politicians described as the equivalent of the U.S. moon landing. But it didn't work. In the end, however, Norwegian researchers have delivered plenty of solid science that can help society shift away from fossil fuels and help lay the groundwork for a cooler planet. And it starts right here. It's December 14th, 1992, and Norway's giant state-owned petroleum company, Statoil, has gotten a very early Christmas present. Its Schleipner West gas field has just been approved for production. But there's just one problem, and it's a big one. The gas contains too much carbon dioxide to sell on the market. Engineers know how to get the CO2 out of the gas. A chemical scrubbing system that's been used since the 1930s will do that job. But then what? What will they do with all this CO2? Carbon dioxide is a problem for the climate, we all know. But there's a second reason why Statoil was really interested in keeping their CO2 out of the atmosphere. As early as 1992, Norway had a carbon tax. That meant if Stadler released the captured CO2 into the air, they'd have to pay the tax. At the time, roughly one million kroner a day. So they decided to do something different. It was something that hadn't been done before.
2: At Sleipner, the special thing is that the captured CO2 is put into the ground.
0: Ulf Bollen is dean of NTNU's faculty of engineering. We'll hear more from him later. Statoil decided to inject CO2 from the Schleipner gas field deep into a sandstone formation. A saltwater aquifer, actually, about 800 meters below sea level. The engineers used a chemical called an amine to suck the CO2 out of the natural gas, and then they pumped it right back down into the sandstone. That sound I played at the beginning of the podcast... That's the sound of the CO2 being injected into the sandstone far below. To inject the CO2 into the sandstone, the engineers have to compress it to a pressure that would be like squeezing 365 soccer balls into one. That's a lot of pressure. This is kind of an oil well in reverse. The sandstone's full of small holes and pores, which allows the CO2 to move around in the rock. The sandstone has a shale cap that traps the CO2 inside the rock formation. And at this depth, the CO2 is colorless, a liquid that looks like water but behaves more like olive oil. It's light enough so that it floats atop the seawater in the sandstone. This was a big, pioneering decision. It was the first time it had ever been done anywhere in the world on a commercial scale. And it's been running ever since. Today, more than 20 million tons of CO2 have been stored under the sea since 1996, which makes it the longest-running carbon capture and storage project in the world. That has given researchers and companies tons of information. This early success has also made Norway willing to be at the forefront of showing that capturing and storing CO2 can work
3: great thing about the projects in Norway, like Sleipner, which have been running for 23 years, is the proof of the bidding. People say, well, will this really work? And we say, well, it has been working pretty much uninterrupted for 23 years, with one single well disposing of all that CO2. It's definitely a solvable problem. We can definitely do large-scale CO2 storage. I'm Phil Ringros. I have a dual role. I'm a geoscientist specialist at Equinor Research Centre in Trondheim. And I'm also professor of CO2 storage as an adjunct professor at NTNU.
0: Philip Ringrose is the only professor of CO2 storage in Norway. He's also involved in the storage part of the new longship project that the Norwegian government has endorsed. But with such a big price tag for the longship project, you might wonder, why can't we just cut carbon emissions by shifting over to windmills and electric cars? We need to reduce our CO2 emissions,
1: and we do that with renewable energy, energy efficiency. But still, when we have done all we can in these areas, we are stuck with CO2
0: emissions, which needs CCS. That's Mune Molvik, director of the Norwegian CCS Research Centre, and a project manager at SINTEF, an independent research institute that works closely with NTNU. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has made it very clear that if the world is going to have a prayer of meeting its climate goals, we will have to use every technique we can, including CCS. But every new fossil fuel plant isn't fitted with carbon capture technology yet. Why aren't we doing everything we can to avoid dangerous global
2: warming? That is some of the challenge with power plants that you have to remove fairly small amounts of, or small fractions of CO2. It's a lot of CO2, but uh, small fractions. So it makes CO2 capture significantly more costly in a power plant compared to a natural gas purification plant.
0: That's Olaf Boland again. He's been involved in carbon capture and storage research since 1989. He's also just co-authored a book called Carbon Dioxide Emission Management in Power Generation. The natural gas purification plant that Boland is talking about, that's Schleipner. The power plant, that's a place called Mungstad, where Norway's moon landing crash-landed. We'll hear more about that in a minute. But bottom line?
2: The increased cost is, is what makes it difficult.
0: Norway has first-hand knowledge of just how expensive commercializing carbon capture and storage can be. The longship project isn't the first time the government has tried to commercialize CO2-capture and storage on a large
2: scale.
0: This is former prime minister Jens Stoltenberg giving what has come to be known as his moon landing speech in 2007. This was the moon landing that actually wasn't. Here he's saying that Norway has the will and the money to invest in technologies to cut CO2 emissions. Here, he says, is where the country could use its technological expertise from projects like Schleipner to pave the way to the future. The new installation would be at a gas power plant and refinery in a town called Mungstad.
2: I think we had all good hopes that that would be, the, let's say, the first really major power plant with CO2 capture. And there was a lot of willingness among the politicians in the most parties that they wanted this to happen. I think Prime Minister at the time, Jens Stoltenberg, said that it was going to be, let's say, Norway's moon landing <laughs> uh, compared to the US moon landing in 1969. It is by, by no means a moon landing. It was, uh, it was nothing close to what, uh, what happened in the U.S. Uh, after John F. Kennedy said they were going to the moon, and it was something completely different from what was needed for making a power plant with CO2 capture.
0: In the end, the Norwegian government invested nearly 1 billion U.S. dollars in trying to establish carbon capture and storage at that plant in September 2013, with costs spiraling out of control. Okay, I have to say it. The government pulled the plug. But Boland said the reasons that it didn't work had less to do with the technology
2: and more about the actual power plant that they were trying to convert. This was an existing power plant that is very tightly integrated with the refinery at Mongstad. That is a refinery that is running, and uh, so going in there and trying to do a CO2 capture plant, uh, there was so much restrictions and requirements because of the refinery operation. It made many of the, let's say, technical solutions complicated and much more expensive than it could have been. So I, I think it was, uh, uh, when I look back at it now, that was a difficult case to make uh, such a first plant. But wisely, it ended up not being accepted by the Norwegian Storting because it would have been, I think, wrong to, to spend all that money for one CO2 capture plant.
0: With such a spectacular and expensive failure, you'd think that Norway might be willing to give up. But Norway takes climate change seriously. And Norwegian Prime Minister Erna Solberg says that the longship project is the right thing to do. She wants to be able to keep Norway's promise to cut its CO2 emissions by at least 50% by 2030. But there's an economic motive here too. She also sees a potential new market for Norway's offshore engineering expertise and for its storage capacity. So. Here's what the Longship project
3: involves. Current plan, which is looking really good, is find the most cost-effective ways to capture CO2 and the lowest hanging fruit. And it turned out that was a cement plant and a waste recycling plant. And then use those to kickstart the process, bring that captured CO2 to the port near Oslo, and then ship it round to the most suitable storage site, which is west of Bergen.
0: The Norwegian government has said it will provide nearly 17 billion kroner, that's 1.8 billion U.S. dollars, to support CO2 capture and storage at the cement plant. Cement is the glue in concrete, which is one of the essential building components in nearly every kind of structure you can think of, from bridges to buildings. But you can't make cement without major CO2 emissions as much as 8% of all the world's CO2 emissions come from cement production. A second part of the plan calls for supporting CO2 capture at a waste recycling plant in Oslo, but only if the project can find other financing too. But here's something that's worth noting. Remember, Norway is a petroleum-producing country. Something like 36% of the country's total income from exports comes from oil. Nevertheless, politicians decided not to make this huge investment in CCS in its oil and gas industry. Philip Ringrose again.
3: One exciting thing about the current Norwegian project, it's not focused on decarbonizing oil and gas. It's focused on decarbonizing industry from land. And Norway, in a way, has taken a bold step and said, well, the really key challenge is decarbonizing industry, cement, steel, waste recycling. And if we can pioneer that in Norway, we can see that rolling out around the rest of the world. The first two steps of this process
0: are to pull the CO2 out of the emissions and transport it to a collection area. Then you have to get it out to where you're going to store it. In this case, the plan calls for...
3: A single pipe to a single wellhead offshore, to dispose of that CO2.
0: Ah, wellhead. That's geology speak for the top of a well. So, some of you may be thinking, Aha! Norway is going to reuse old oil wells to store CO2. Brilliant! The ultimate in recycling. But, no. It turns out that CO2 is slightly acidic, so the wells have to be able to tolerate that.
3: You could to some extent use old wells, but old wells do have the problem that they're old, they may be corroded, they've been around for 20 years perhaps, and they're not necessarily the best choice. So our vision is very much use the old knowledge from old wells, and they are what we use to characterize our geological formations, but primarily go for new wells, which will be the cheapest in class, cost-effective, new Wells that will dispose of CO2. And there's one slight difference with CO2 injection wells. They need to be corrosion resistant because CO2 reacting with water is a very weak acid. So when you're operating a CO2 injection well, you need slightly better quality elements the steels, the rubber membranes than you might have in a conventional gas well.
0: So you can't save money by reusing old oil wells, but you can help save the planet even if it is expensive on the face of it.
3: It is quite an expensive project in total investment to get it going, but it's also the cheapest of all those elements. We picked the cheapest capture, the cheapest route to transport it, and the cheapest way to dispose of it underground. So it should be a good project to kickstart CCS. And once you get the first project, you can build on that and hopefully get economies of scale so that the whole process becomes quite cost-effective but also have the ability to scale up.
0: And scaling up shouldn't be a problem, at least when it comes to storage. Experts like Ringrose have looked at how much storage capacity there is out there for CO2.
3: We reviewed all of the global offshore basin data. Uh, Gulf of Mexico and North Sea were the main focuses, but we looked at the entire planet. And our question that we were trying to address was, what actually is the storage capacity of our world globally? And we found out it's huge. We have plenty of room to store CO2.
0: By now you might be asking yourself, is it actually a good idea to pump CO2 into undersea rock formations?
3: Is it safe? Philip Ringrose. The law has certain requirements you must monitor. And the two things the law requires is that you must show that your monitoring goes according to plan. We call that conformance, okay? And then the other one is you must show that there is no risk of leakage. So the the monitoring activities, which usually include geophysical imaging, listening to micro-earthquakes, recording the pressure continuously in a a well, these monitoring methods are basically designed to, to assure all of the stakeholders, you say, in the project, which might be government officials, but very often members of the public, Just assure them that this project is going according to plan. Uh, And certainly I think one of the requirements for CO2 storage projects in the next decades is they're going to have to be quite open about this monitoring data. They're going to have to show people time and time again this site is going okay.
0: Remember the Schleipner gas field, the first place in the world where CO2 was injected under the sea? That long history from Schleipner has really helped geologists understand what's going on over time as the CO2 is injected.
3: We've been sharing the time-lapse seismic data with research institutes globally for decades now, um, so that any researcher can see the data and see, yeah, yeah, looks good, there's the CO2, I can see it. Here we need a little translation. Time-lapsed seismic data? It's a bit like, it's very analogous to imaging a baby in the womb. (laughs) Uh, You're using a sonic sound wave, Uh, into the earth to to look at the changes in response. So when when you do seismic imaging of the earth, you send these sound waves down and you can record the reflective layers in the earth and we use that for mapping. But the great thing about CO2 is when you inject CO2, it changes those reflection properties in the earth. So then when you shoot a second survey, a time-lapse survey, you see the change in reflectivity as where the CO2 is. Obviously it's a kind of remote method so you can't see every molecule of CO2 everywhere, but you can see all of the thick layers of CO2 with seismic imaging.
0: Okay, not only do we have the science to show that this can be done safely, but the project will be closely monitored with the information shared openly so we all know what's going on. That's all good because here's another selling point that Erna Sewellberg has used to build support for the project. She points out that capturing CO2 from both the cement plant and the waste recycling plant will fill only 40% of the storage capacity for this one well, which Ringrose and his colleagues say has the capacity to store 100 million tons of CO2. She's hoping that the EU could become a customer. Cost is going to be an issue. But every technology is expensive when it's first rolled out full scale. And then there's the question of getting what you pay for. Philip Ringrose again.
3: Many researchers have been working on all aspects of the capture, transport, and storage value chain for decades. So there's no doubt it's a mature technology. The real question is, do societies want to deploy that technology? You're talking about paying a reasonable amount of money to get rid of your Gases that you don't want to throw to atmosphere. So it's a question of relative values. So in Norway and in Sweden and several other countries around the world, there is a carbon price already in place. And our societies work fine with that carbon price. So all you're saying is it's not permitted to throw CO2 into the atmosphere. Or if you do, you have to pay is very much analogous to it's not permitted to throw garbage into the rivers because that pollutes our drinking water supply. If you did, as an industry, you'd be fined a lot of money. So taxing CO2 emissions to atmosphere is a practical way of making sure that we change our behaviors. And as soon as we have a society with a a tax or a cost on emitting carbon to atmosphere, CO2 to atmosphere, these other industries will start happening automatically. We will find ways to just do it cost-effectively.
0: All of this is good news because when the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change looked at how much CO2 we'll need to remove from the atmosphere to keep global warming to 1.5 degrees C, they calculated humanity will have to capture and store between 100 to 1,000 gigatons of CO2 this century. By the way, a gigaton, if you're wondering, is 1 billion tons. A one with nine zeros after it. And a thousand gigatons is a one with 12 zeros. Some people have voiced concerns that CO2 will act like a crutch for companies that don't want to stop using fossil fuels. But remember, just by choosing to invest in CCS for a cement plant, Norway is acknowledging the 800-pound gorilla in the room, that we have to transition away from fossil fuels as soon as we can.
3: We've always argued that carbon capture and storage is a transition to a long term carbon free future.
0: Nevertheless, there's no way we can put all of our unwanted CO2 under the sea. We will need lots of other technologies to store carbon, like planting more trees and finding ways to get the soil to absorb more carbon. But because of Norway's history, and experience with Schleipner and other storage projects, the general consensus is that the place where the country can be of the most help is with storing CO2 under the sea. Geologists like Philip Ringrose and engineers like Olaf Boland and Muna Mulvik have demonstrated we can store it. Paying for it, however, is the big part of the reason why it hasn't happened yet on a large scale. That's where governments worldwide have to act.
3: You know, there's this continual discussion about carbon capture, who's going to pay for it? Why would you do something which uh, isn't going to make you any money? And it might at the first seem quite an expensive thing to do, but when you scale it up to a a global or regional activity, it's actually a very cost-effective thing to do.
0: The Paris Agreement was one step towards action. Individual nations are making pledges to cut emissions as early as 2030 or 2050. Countries are building more and more renewable energy projects. They're pushing to move personal transportation away from fossil fuels to electric cars. Look at GM in the US. They said all the cars they will sell by 2035 will be electric cars. Many developed countries have programs to increase energy efficiencies in homes and commercial buildings. But some things we do, like make cement, just can't be done without CO2 emissions, at least not
3: yet. When it comes to the hard questions, what am I gonna do with heavy industry, shipping, a lot of industrial processes which you simply cannot decarbonize fully uh, without carbon capture? Then you're gonna have all this, this captured CO2 and you'll want to do something with it. And more and more,
0: there's a real cost to not dealing with CO2, both for the planet and for the companies that want to sell their products. Regulators and consumers are realizing that emitting CO2 to the atmosphere has its own costs, and the pressure is on to act. Muna Muldnik from the Norwegian CCS Center.
1: We see the EU Green Deal being developed now, CO2 border tax discussions, there's so many issues coming into play now, so, so you can't just ignore your CO2 emissions because if you do, you might not have a market for your pro- products in the future.
0: And engineers like Muna are also thinking about future ways of powering society that include carbon capture and storage as an integrated part of generating energy. We will certainly
1: see large-scale hydrogen production with CCS, and this is a big main player which we will see in in the coming years and we will see it in
0: Norway and we will see it in Europe and we will see it around the world. Hydrogen as an energy source. If it's produced using natural gas and if the carbon is captured and stored during the process, it can be a clean, climate-friendly source of energy. Natural gas is mostly
1: methane and methane is one carbon molecule and four hydrogen molecules. So you want to take out the carbon molecule and and you want to maintain the hydrogen molecules and sell that as a carbon-free fuel. Hydrogen produced from natural gas with CCS is a very important player together with hydrogen which is produced from renewable electricity because it can provide a lot more in a shorter time. So it is a solution for the energy transition.
0: It may sound far-fetched, but this is not the first time that Norway has built an entire industry from scratch.
1: If you go back to the North Sea, 50 years ago, or a little bit more than 50 years ago, there was almost nothing out there. And now it's 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 a world of offshore technology. And you can imagine the same things going on for CCS.
0: The message is clear. The climate science is there and the technological know-how is ready too. It's just a matter of getting politicians to see that our climate is worth the investment it will take to make CCS a reality. And in Norway, they seem to have done that. I'm Nancy Baselchuk, and you've been listening to 63 Degrees North, an original podcast from NTNU, the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. If you've enjoyed today's show, I hope you'll let your friends know and leave us a rating on your podcast app. Editorial help and sound design by Historia Bruke. Thanks for listening.